Welcome to Horsepower to Hyperloops, Kettering University's official podcast, where we serve up a smorgasbord of fascinating people, groundbreaking ideas, and noteworthy advancements in fields as diverse as mobility, healthcare, engineering, and technology. What we're trying to do is essentially fly, grab that efficiency aspect of flight, okay, put it on a guideway, so you have both the advantages of the safety, as you see in trains, as well as electrically power it, and have a module, a pod, that is very much like an automobile, that people can fly by themselves with a small group of people that they're comfortable with. So that's the idea, basically, is to capture the best features of those three technologies and encapsulate them into one new technology that we refer to as terraplane. Hi, I'm Tim Troop Newton, your host for our In the Mix series. And that was Dr. Ken McLeod, systems engineer at Binghamton University, outlining his design for an intercity transportation system that could entirely solve the commuting problem in this country. Like millions in the New York area, I sure could have used a better system when I lived north of the city and had to drive 20 minutes to New Canaan, Connecticut, take one train to Stamford and another to New York, and then take two different subways to my destination. Today, the average commuter in cities all over the country travels almost a half hour each way. Tens of millions more people travel over an hour, and almost 5 million travel over 90 minutes each way. Put another way, the average commuter spends 225 hours, or almost five and a half work weeks per year, commuting. And those numbers are going up every year, with massive implications for urban demographics and even public health. Ken, thanks for joining us today to talk about how we got ourselves into this mess and how we can perhaps get ourselves out of it. I appreciate being on uh, one of the inaugural broadcasts of your, your podcast it's kind of fun talking. It's been many years since I've been involved with Kettering, and so it's a nice opportunity. So, Ken, break down this issue a bit for us. I know it's not a new problem. If you look at the situation at the turn of the 20th century, the population density in New York City was 100,000 per square mile. People were packed into that city because basically the way to get to work uh, was to walk. And so you had this condensed industry and residences and business, um, which is, it was packed in there, and people moved around by walking or by horse. For the most part, horses were hauling freight. They were bringing food into the, the city and materials into the city and materials out of the city and waste out of the city. And that dependence on horse was a staggering problem. It was a staggering health problem. And we've forgotten that. The first uh, urban planning conference was in 1898 in New York City. The theme was horse manure. What do we do with all the horse manure? New York City had 200,000 horses moving people around, moving freight around, moving dead horses out of the city, moving food (laughs) in for the horses. Half those horses were basically bringing hay in and hauling manure out of the city. It was just a staggering logistical issue. Hundreds of horses would die a day in uh, New York City in the summertime. They would have to be hauled up to Central Park where they were burned. So just try to put yourself in this environment. So every day, hundreds of horses are being incinerated in the middle of Central Park. 
manure is thick on the streets. Urine is, is running everywhere. On the empty lots, the manure piles could be 40, 50, 60 feet high, covered in flies. This is the life of a New Yorker a little over 100 years ago. Nobody knew what the answer was. So they they brought in people from urban areas around the world to New York City in 1898 for a 10-day conference. And after about three days, they said, we have no idea. We don't know what we're going to do. And the conference ended. And they're making these forecasts. What is If it looks like this now, what's it going to be in 1920 and 1930 and 1940? And of course, Horses had been the mode of transportation for a thousand years, maybe more, 2000 years. So it wasn't like, oh, we see what's coming along. The presumption was horses are what it's going to be for the next thousand years. But then, of course, what happened is the Model T, right? Everybody could now afford a car and the horses were gone. The streets were clean. The flies were gone. It just transformed society the health of the people were better. I mean, just imagine, you know, the illness just associated with living in that environment. So you really do want to think, and when I teach health systems, I point out that you really want to think of the automobile as a healthcare device. It's probably has saved more lives. And I didn't even get to the fact that horses kill a lot of people. Getting kicked by a horse, a child that will kill you, your adult, it'll maim you, run away, carriages. It was a very dangerous life at the turn of the 20th century. So at any rate, all that started disappearing in the early 20th century. Ford, GM, both were formed in 1908, and the rest is history as we say it. We complain a lot now about the pollution caused by automobiles, and I guess somebody back then might have looked forward and say, are we thinking about air pollution? But they were so thrilled to get those horses off the street that it was like a miracle. I mean, it was truly amazing. So, And then, of course, what happened is people can say, I can afford a car. I'm going to, like you lived up in Westchester. I'm getting out of Dodge. Do you really want to live in a community, 100,000 people per square mile? And the answer is not usually. And so people started moving north and moving east and moving west. And slowly but surely, we had a decline in that population density. So we're down in New York City now, and it is by far the most dense city in the America. We're down to about 25,000 per square mile. So the density is only 25% of what it was 100 years ago. And all those people moved north. Okay. And so, but exactly as you said, now all those people have to get back into the city because that's where the jobs are. So we have this commute issue, but we also have the fact that huge numbers of people can't afford to live in Westchester. Okay. So they want to, or can't afford a car. And so they want to be in the city, but they can't afford to live in the city. I have two children that live in urban areas, you know, one in New York City, one in San Francisco. They both have one bedroom apartments. They both pay in the 3000 to 4000 a month rents range. Okay, so think about that. The first 50000 of your income, 40 to 50000 of your income after taxes, only covers your housing. Okay, so that's, you have to earn 60000 a year just to pay for your housing. How do people do that? There's plenty of jobs that do not pay 60000 a year. So where do those people live? Okay, and there's nowhere in the city to live and be close to their work. And so that gets back to your question, how did I get involved in this? Well, I happen to live in an area, Binghamton, New York, where there's tons of housing available. A very expensive house in Binghamton is $100,000, which is probably a few hundred dollars a month in mortgage payment, plus taxes and taxes are nothing. So what's happening and why is that the situation in Binghamton? Well, the answer is there's not many jobs in Binghamton. The jobs are in New York City. So 
the people want to live in areas and it basically every rural county in America, 80% of the counties in America are draining out. People are leaving them. They're getting smaller every year. I've lived here for 20 years and the Binghamton area has lost about a thousand people per year for 20 years. So we're down about 20,000 people. Why is that? It's a beautiful area. There's lots of housing, lots of water, power. You know, it's beautiful. The schools are great and it's just draining out. Meanwhile, people are struggling to find housing in New York City. So it seems to me the obvious answer is do what we did 120 years ago. Come up with a, a transportation system that allowed our great grandparents, our grandparents maybe, in my case, great grandparents, depending on how old you are, get out of the city, move up into the Rockland, Westchester area, over into Passaic, you know, off into Suffolk County, Nassau County on Long Island. Um, they were able to get out of the city and they could, it was all greenfields then, the housing was very inexpensive, and yet their cars allowed them to get into the city very conveniently. We're back to that. You know, we've really gone full circle where the city is getting crowded again because people have to be close. And the only place they can be close, they can't go into the suburbs anymore and commute in. It's just too far. I mean, two hours is a long time, but you come up to, you can say, I'll live in Binghamton. Well, in an automobile, Binghamton to New York City, 180 miles is about four hours, rush hour, five hours. So if you want to do a 10-hour commute each day, you can live in Binghamton. And that's ridiculous. In the 21st century, to take five hours to go 180 miles is insanity. So that's the issue we're addressing. And frankly, we can extend beyond there. I have a consulting uh, contract with a group in El Paso, which is about 1,800 miles, something like that. To get from Binghamton to El Paso, I fly to Detroit. I fly from Detroit to Houston. I fly from Houston to El Paso. It takes me 15, 18 hours. You're thinking flying is really fast. Well, it's under 100 miles an hour, even for a long distance trip. If you're flying under 400 miles, it's probably going to be faster to drive. Yes, you know we're kind of talking regional transportation issues here, but on a national scale, we're really struggling with transportation for a, a very large fraction of the population. If you live in a large urban center, you know, my daughter commutes back and forth from Boston to San Francisco. She can fly direct from Boston, San Francisco and back. But outside of that, it's a two-hop or three-hop affair any rate, so we, I got into this by thinking about why aren't people moving to Binghamton and commute? How do we make Binghamton a, a bedroom community of New York City? Uh, but I do think there are many other applications of the technology. A lot of people have been dealing with this problem, of course, on the largest form of transportation, intercoastal, all over the place, is Elon Musk and Hyperloops and various and sundry other things. There's also been a variety of different ideas people. Uh, obviously, the interstate system was one of those, but that has limited capabilities now. Light rail, maglev, uh, where there's sort of monorail kind of deals, and those are helpful at times. All these things have pros and cons, and obviously, we're still looking for something. Light rail systems have been rejected in a number of places. And then uh, there's a story, I thought it was interesting, that the flying air taxis uh, was an idea back in the late part of the you know 1990s. And then and that NASA was involved, and that got canned, if I'm not correct, for some obvious reasons, right? That's absolutely right, that the deregulation of the airline industry occurred during the Reagan administration, and we transitioned from a point-to-point -point system to a hub-and-spoke system. And NASA very quickly figured out 
that this was not working. I mean, so NASA does space research, but it's, you know, National Aeronautics. I mean, so they're responsible for flight as well. Realized that the hub and spoke system was not working and did the original calculations showing that for flights under 300 miles, um, you might as well drive because you're going to have to drive to a regional airport. You're going to have to sit there and wait. You're going to have to taxi out. You're going to be flying not to your destination, but to the closest large airport near your destination. Then you're going to go rent a car and you're going to drive to your destination. And so the typical point to point travel speed is about 40 miles an hour if you're flying under 300 miles. And so they did. They developed the SATS program, the small aircraft transportation system program, you know, small single engine jets, you know, hold four to eight people. Um, put it all together. The idea was let's move beyond the 250 airports that handle 95% of the air traffic and let's use the other 13,000 airports. I had no idea there were 13,000 airports in the wow. US. Staggering number. And then it may not be exactly point to point, but it's pretty darn close. And then you close the gap, you know, with that last mile technology, Uber, you know, or whatever the case may be. So that was ready to go. Absolutely. You're right. At the end of the 20th century, 2000, 2001, it was going to be rolled out. And then, of course, we had 9-11. And the FAA said, there's no way we're going to have a million air taxis flying around that are not controlled. We don't know who's in them, what's in them. Um, they could be full of explosives, me flying into buildings everywhere. We're not going to have that. And so that program that had been fully developed just went onto a shelf and it has not been pulled off the shelf. So there continues to be an interest in air taxi type programs, but it is a real issue. The safety issue is a real issue. And so we have to think about that and um, address that right up front. And so that is exactly what we've been doing. We've been thinking about all these points, you're bringing up excellent points. We've been thinking about all of these points. What makes the automobile so incredibly popular? Why can't we have an air traffic system? Why is it that rail hasn't caught on like it has caught on in, in other communities? And address those because all three technologies have you know wonderful features. Rail tends to be incredibly safe and, and incredibly efficient. But as you point out, it's not on demand. You know, there's a schedule and you know, you you adjust your schedule to the schedule of the trains. It's also very expensive to build, to build. a lot of real real estate issues and a lot of maintenance issues, and that's huge, right? Very. You know, the high speed rail systems um, they can literally approach a billion dollars a mile. So yes, it's ridiculously expensive. California very is probably the most recent region to uh, to try it, and they've just you know the idea high speed link between San Francisco and L.A. And they've just been shortening and shortening and shortening it. And they've, they've got it down to a short stretch between two cities that nobody really wants to go to. But exactly right. I mean, the real estate issues are huge. You have you know, grade crossings, which are dangerous. You just have all of those, those issues. So there's good things about rail, but it tends to be very expensive to build, as you point out, very expensive to operate. And you're traveling with a bunch of strangers. People, especially now, don't like traveling with strangers, especially in the time of COVID. They love their cars. My car, I can leave when I want to leave. I go point to point. I'm with myself or I'm with my friends. Uh, people just love that. Um, and so, you know, the whole idea of engineering is give people what they love. You know, don't force them into to something else. Um, they're just ridiculously inefficient and they're ridiculously unsafe. Um, we're still killing 40,000 people a year in automobile accidents. And, you know, the, the trauma is staggering. I mean, when back in the 70s, when I, I still worked for GM, you know, kind of the inside 
Fisher body was responsible for a lot of the safety features in automobiles. And internally, we would say basically a Vietnam a year is what we were doing back then. Wow. Yeah, almost 60,000 people a year. So it's gotten a lot better without question. There's more people driving more miles, but we're still at 40,000 people a year. Staggering number. And we're still tied to fossil fuels, which that brings us to issues of sustainability. So we've got these issues. We've got this problem of intracity transportation. And we've got issues of convenience. We've got safety and comfort. We've got costs to build. We've got costs to maintain. We've got green issues. And all of these things, light rail, trains, automobiles, even the air taxi idea, and all the things that people put out have great pros and great cons, unfortunately. But you've been working on something that sort of takes the best of breed from all these things and envisions a new way, which going back to my opening thoughts, if I'm back in Pound Ridge, I might be able to uh, drive, maybe it's still New Canaan or somewhere that for that last mile, drive a bit. But then I could uh, get on what you're envisioning at my convenience with myself or a few others and be in New York in a few minutes and get out and go from there. I'm oversimplifying that, but let me kick it over to you and tell me the ideas that you're working on at this point. You're quite accurate. I think that the important thing, and you know, you're talking New Canaan to New York City, which is a really highly traveled route. That route might even be able to afford high-speed rail. It's a billion dollars. There are individuals in New Canaan who could afford that, let alone the community. But there are staggering numbers of people who don't live in the New Canaan-like areas of very wealthy communities. And so we are looking to build a system that is inexpensive enough that any community that wanted to be connected to the system could be connected. That is to say, no more expensive than paving a road. So it costs, you know, a couple million a mile to um, pour a, a lane mile of roadway. Compare that again to what you were telling me that uh, that rail can cost. So rail can cost up to about a billion a mile. So we're talking a factor of 300 to 500 uh, less expensive. So, um, yeah, so this means we could literally connect the entire country, you know, pretty easily. Um, And that's the goal. Every community that wants to be connected to the system could become connected to the system. So we really are trying to build a transportation network, a high speed surface transportation network. And, you know, essentially, I don't know if you want to think of it as an air taxi system or a flying car system coming out of the auto industry, I suppose, and being old enough to remember the Jetsons. You know, we've wanted flying cars since the from the 50s. So we can think of them as flying cars. But the idea is to do exactly what you're you're talking about, that these three major systems all have, you know, significant benefits. Each of them have distinct advantages. And we are trying to capture the advantages of each of these systems. The automobile is wonderful in that it's a small pod that you can personally own if you want to because they're fairly inexpensive and you fly it on a public, you drive it on a public maintained road. People like that. You can leave on demand and you travel essentially point to point. So we're trying to capture the essence of automobile travel. On the other hand, they're very inefficient. They are incredibly unsafe. So how do you make it safe? Well, trains are very safe. Trains fly on a rail, basically, right? A heavy, it could be a heavy rail, it could be a light rail, but they're guided. They're one dimensional um, transportation. There's only one place they can go. They're not occasionally something will happen and they will fly off the rail 
Um, we just had one of those um, in uh, Asia. Taiwan, was it? I think there was a, a train wreck. There's always going to be mistakes. But um, you know, the bottom line is by confining motion onto a guideway, a rail makes it you know, much simpler. The, and they're electrified, so they are sustainable. All right. Planes are very fast. They're reasonably efficient, but they're fairly dangerous. And of course, we have all the issues we've talked about. They want to be carefully controlled because you could load them up with explosives and they tend to we pack people into them. People don't like that so much. At this stage, we can't really run them on electric power. That might be off in the future when batteries are significantly more efficient than they are now. Uh, but that's way off in the future. But there are certainly advantages of, of flying, of using kind of air as the lubricant for motion. And so what we're trying to do is essentially fly, grab that efficiency aspect of flight, okay, put it on a guideway. So you have both the advantages of the safety, as you see in trains, as well as electrically power it, and have a module, a pod that is very much like an automobile, that people can fly by themselves with a small group of people that they're comfortable with. And NASA, back in the SATS days, did all those calculations. And they said, frankly, four to eight person pods will handle 99% of the traffic. So a four person pod, if one person's in it, it's not ridiculously inefficient. And most people travel in groups of two or three. And if you want a bigger group, you can have a, you know, like we have the suburban type, you know, the, the big Lincolns say, hell, eight people if you need to do that. For the soccer moms. So that's the idea, basically, is to capture the best features of those three technologies and encapsulate them into one new technology that we refer to as terraplane. Let me see if I can encapsulate this. What you're talking about, and I think the flying technology, to just put it in layman's terms, is kind of interesting, and I'd like you to explain that, is something that is kind of like a monorail in that it's suspended above the ground and looks like that. And yet it's not a monorail from the standpoint of their pods instead of one big train that might be leaving at a particular time. And so you have a pod on a monorail type system, but it's not a monorail in the sense that it's actually flying uh, using uh, flying technology by hanging off the monorail and zooming along. So y you would go along, you would pull over your pod of four to eight people at your convenience, get in it, and off you would go. But you're flying, which is a very efficient thing, and you're getting to the other end. So tell me a little bit more, if I've got that, correct me where I'm wrong, but tell me a little bit more about the technology there and the speed that can go and what that would mean for the individual commuter, again, whether they're in Pound Ridge or Evanston, Illinois, or Plano, Texas. Mm -hmm. Yes. So there is an important technological aspect that we haven't talked about yet, and in a way, it is kind of like suspended from a, a monorail, but it is not a monorail. It would be a guideway. And essentially, the wing of the vehicle sits inside the guideway. And, and the important thing to recognize is that there's two flight modes. Um, there's what we call free stream flight. So when you think about an airplane, uh, it's in free stream flight. It's just suspended out there in midair. There's another mode of flight called wing and ground mode. And in wing and ground mode, the wing of the vehicle is very close to a ground plane, to a surface. And in wing and ground mode, uh, the air can't escape. It's trapped between the wing and the ground. And in wing and ground mode, 
the lift drag ratio for a vehicle skyrockets. It gets, um, if the wing is close enough to the ground plane, the efficiency becomes extremely high. So though I say flying is very efficient, flying in wing and ground mode is an order of magnitude more efficient um, than pre-stream flight. So that's the basic concept, technological concept. And we can do that now. I mean, the trick is if you you have a wing inside a guideway, um, how would you not crash into the guideway? Years ago, that would have been a challenge. But given the state of uh, electronic control systems now, we can very easily keep that wing centered in the guideway through flight control electronics uh, so that we can maintain that spacing to maintain optimal efficiency in uh, wing and ground flight mode. And so speed-wise, what we are thinking is probably, you know, again, if you could go 60 miles an hour, you're flying faster than most planes from a point-to-point perspective, but we're actually talking about operating closer to 250 or 300 miles an hour. So what does that mean? That means from Binghamton to New York City, the five-hour commute that I do when every time I drive down to the city, that becomes 30 minutes. So it's substantially faster commute. And so what does that do to Binghamton? Um, say this, you have that technology. Then Binghamton suddenly becomes a much more People flock to Binghamton. Everything rises in Binghamton. There's more houses, more everything. It's it's great for Binghamton's economy. It would be huge, I think, for the community. And you know, people who cannot afford to live in New York City would would initially want to live here and fly down to New York every day. But over time, exactly as you say, we go from a community of two hundred thousand to half a million or to one million. Um, and again, you have n squared effects. And so now, instead of all the action being in New York City. You want to launch a venture. And of course, I teach entrepreneurship at the university. And that's what I want all young people to do. The number of venture launches has just been plummeting for the last 50 years. It's down by two thirds. Young people are just not finding the people they need to connect and launch their ventures. But if you have a million bright young people sitting in Binghamton, um, and of course, Binghamton has a long history of launching ventures many years ago, three generations back. Link simulation started here. The whole aircraft simulation business started here. IBM started here. The largest shoe manufacturing in the world was based here back at the turn of the 20th century. Um, so there's some history here, and that history has just died out. But that's exactly what I would hope would happen. It would happen not only in Binghamton, but it would happen in hundreds, thousands of communities around the country. That once you get to a critical mass, people say, yeah, I could fly down. It's only 30 minutes down to New York City. On the other hand, there are 10 of us here in Binghamton that want to launch a venture. We launch the venture. And if we have to go into New York City to talk to the bankers or, you know, whoever is financing us, it's a 30-minute trip. They can come up. And investors do like to be very close to the ventures they finance. They want to be 30 minutes to an hour away. And if that happens to be 300 miles away, that's fine. As long as it's, you know, I fly up, I visit the team, I fly home, I'm home for dinner. They're happy with that. So, it's just going to be, it's going to take a lot of pressure off the, the urban cores, the large urban cores, what we now call the economic centers, of which there are a few dozen, you know, we're the 25, where the 25 major airports are. And we're going to convert that into having hundreds or thousands of regional economic centers would exactly be the goal. I think we can achieve that. So the ripple effect on the economy, on demographics, on urban logistics, I don't know if that's a term, but I just coined it, <laughs> on the individual 
whose choice to where he or she wants to live is massive, it seems to me. It's not just cool, I can go faster, but it's a would have an effect. All I mean, th- however, this problem is solved, whether it's through Terraplane or something else, it will change the nature of life in America and for every individual. Well, I mean, just think back to you pointed out the uh, the interstate system, but the arrival of the car, it took 20 or 30 years, but transformed cities. The whole suburbanization of America is due to the automobile. That's what drove that. And that transformed America. That was pretty effective in lowering population densities and such, but we're kind of stalled. Uh, we've been stalled for a long time. Um, and so it's the next phase. Really, all we're talking about is the next phase of that. How do you get beyond the suburbs? How do you get into those exurbs? Um, I guess they're calling it now that range, not just that 50-mile range around a city, but perhaps a 300-mile range around the city. And now once you start talking about a 300-mile radius around the city, you realize that pretty well covers the entire continental United States. Everybody is within an economic core region. And so everyone can maximize their contribution. I want to restate that we're talking with Dr. Ken McLeod, a systems engineer at Binghamton University, about energy-efficient, high-speed ground transportation technology, specifically one called Terraplane that he's working on, which combines the sort of best uh, features of automotive, light rail, and air travel completely. And to boil that down again, I live in Chapel Hill, North Carolina currently. If I want to go down to a Panthers game in Charlotte, which is a two-hour and 15-minute ride, not counting the parking and traffic and so on, which makes it three and a half each way, and I get home at three in the morning, I might be able to get there through Terraplane in uh, 20 minutes. If you're going to from Statesville, you might get there an hour away in 10 or 15. If you're going into Chicago from the upper suburbs, lightning quick. If you're going to St. Louis to Kansas City, which is, I guess, I don't know, a number of hours, you might do that. Oh, yeah, it's a hike. There's six hours, probably. Yeah. Yeah. You might do that in 40 minutes, right? Yes. So this would be uh, uh, with a high degree of safety. And, you know, the problem with, with all these things is you start laying down a light rail. You've got to do eminent domain. You've got incredible costs, as we've talked about. You've got to displace a lot of things. You've got a lot of stakeholders that are going to have to buy in and approve. And then you've got all kinds of things. This type of technology, you would put up stanchions or poles, and there'd be a a rail, uh, the guideway would be a rail on either side. It could run down the middle of interstates, and that's why it's much cheaper to put up. It doesn't involve all the rail and so on. Am I correct on that? That's absolutely correct. Not only is can we use existing right-of-ways, but, of course, you don't have grade crossings. And that's always a concern with high-speed transportation systems are how do you handle grade crossings? And so there'll be no grade crossings. And so one doesn't have to worry about children or cars or whatever being hit by these vehicles that are going at a fairly remarkable speed. So, yes. Do you talk about autonomous vehicles and I was I was talking with somebody else we have a a podcast on that and uh that's going to change things a great deal and it'll probably start with uh uh trucks and then go to public transport and uh taxis and work its way through the system and we were talking about how long that takes. How long would something like this take? 
to get into play from where you're at now to a beta test market all the way to being built out? What could you see? So you're right, and it's important to bring up autonomous control because obviously you don't want people controlling a vehicle traveling at at 250 miles an hour. But again, it's one-dimensional travel. So you know we're talking 25 years probably to get true autonomous control of automobiles. And that's because it's a very challenging situation when you're traveling on the ground. You have all the potential uh, interference objects, you have weather conditions, you, you name it. One-dimensional travel on a elevated rail, a weather issues are non-existent. We don't worry about, you know, there are, there's no road surface. It can't be slippery. There's no ice. There's no snow issues. You don't have that. Um, but it's just, it's one-dimensional. You basically, you know, think walking down a street in an urban area. Um, how do you control yourself? You know, the answer is don't step on the person in front of you. You don't worry who's to the left or right. You don't worry about who's behind you. You just don't hit the thing in front of you. Um, and so the control system becomes remarkably simple. Autonomous control of these vehicles is an order of magnitude um, simpler than for an automobile and probably two orders of magnitude simpler than for flight, you know, three stream flight in three dimensions. So those issues are much reduced, allowing us to do this very quickly. We have a demonstration project and development that we expect to be completed within three years and then go into commercialization for the first commercial run, which would probably be, you know, something short, you know, 10 or 20 miles just to demonstrate to communities. This is what you can have who is interested. Building out the network is probably going to take as long as maybe building out the interstate system. But that was not very long. I mean, in the, you know, the first interstates were built, I think New York State Thruway was the first uh, 49, 50, somewhere in there. And 50 years later, the interstate system was pretty well built out. So it's not going to take a very long period of time. You know, it feels to me that we are kind of like the uh, commission that met in New York around the turn of the 20th century and the 1900s to, well, when it became 1900. And they said, well, what are we going to do with all the horses, the manure, the urine? And they said, we don't know. Lacking this sort of technology, it feels like we're at the same place. Where are we going to go? We don't have a choice. We have to find some solution, it seems to me. Am I right, Ken? Whatever, whatever it is to, to solve this sort of problem, or it's just going to get worse. It's going gonna, it's gonna to get unlivable if it's not unlivable now. Right. And, you know, I don't, I don't want to imply that we have the answer, the definitive answer. I think what's important in promoting innovation and promoting entrepreneurship is that you help many ventures test the field. I mean, if you go back to, yes, there was GM and Ford got started in 1908. uh, But in that same time period, hundreds of automobile companies um, got started. Uh, GM's whole corporate structure was buying up other companies. You know, they bought up Chevrolet and they bought up Oldsmobile and they bought up Pontiac and they bought up Cadillac. Cadillac was actually the original Ford company that went bankrupt. And then the, a group of investors in Detroit bought it and then it got merged into GM. So I, I think we're going to see this. I think we're going to see a lot of bright people propose things. And I think that we shouldn't bet the farm on one technology. Um, we should, the nation, the you know, communities, whatever, should foster a number of attempts. And one of them is going to work and that what's going to work is likely going to be a combination of several things. So just like we're not out there inventing new technology, we're taking well-established technologies and we're recombining them into something new. But it's a recombination of established technology. 
and other people will have concepts for developing other technologies. Maybe somebody has an idea for an air taxi system that is safe in some way and and can't be used as a weapon of mass destruction. And we should be fostering that as well and supporting that. At the end of the day, some things are going to work and some things are not going to work. But the answer isn't to bet the farm. You know, we keep saying, can we build a high-speed heavy rail system, maybe from New York to Washington, D.C., or Boston to Washington, D.C.? Well, we probably can do that for a staggering amount of money. That's 300 miles at a billion a mile, $300 billion. The people in Boston and, and Washington will love that. Of course, what the politicians in Washington like does tend to get funded. But that doesn't really help 99% of the population of the country. And so we really do want to think about what technologies. And of course, even though we're GM people, it is what Henry Ford figured out, right? I mean, there were lots of inexpensive cars in 1908, but there were two passenger cars. What good is that to a family? And there were lots of five passenger cars, but they were ridiculously expensive. They were two annual salaries for the, you know, how, how do you afford that? And his concept, you know, it's kind of like years later with Steve Jobs telling Wozniak, I think everybody's going to want a computer. And Wozniak's going, why would everybody want a computer? <laughs> you know, just, There's a few geeks that want a computer. And Jobs goes, no, I think everybody wants a computer. And of course, Jobs was right. Everybody wanted a computer or two or three or 10. And in the same way, Ford said, every family wants a car. And if I could build a car that would hold five people, it would hold a family, and it's inexpensive enough that a family can afford it, they're going to sell like gangbusters and, of course, transform society. And so I think we need to remember that and, and get back to that, that a technology that benefits a small subset is not going to transform society. I and mean, we have to make this so it works for everybody, every little community in America that wants to be connected. Are there communities that don't want to be connected? Undoubtedly. And that's fine. But if they want to be connected, it should be inexpensive enough that to connect to the main line from East McKeesport is going to cost you $10 million. Go to the state, ask for $10 million. They get their 10 millions. They lay out a one mile long exit, a one mile long entrance, build a cute little station, and they are connected to the, the transportation internet. I think it's really important that we, we think that way. And we think the terraplane concept has a lot of potential along those lines, but I think the important thing is that we try many different things instead of betting on betting the farm on one thing. You know, if the answer is we have to spend $100 billion to do a test, the test is never going to get done. And so if I say, well, we can build this for $3 million a mile, let's build a 10-mile link. All right, that's $30 million. Nobody's going to throw up their hands and say, oh, my God, $30 million. And that's just staggering. That's going to sink the community or the state or the nation. They're going to go, wow, really? $30 million? You know, planning studies. You're going to build 10 miles of this for $30 million. I think most communities will say, yeah, let's do it. Let's try it. Okay. And it may fail. I don't think it will fail. But of course, that's what entrepreneurs always say, right? But I think we have to take that approach because you're absolutely right. These are serious concerns we have. I mean, they affect not just make commuting um, easier, but I'm from an era when there was this huge middle class. It's gone. You know, we have a huge underclass and we have an upper, very small upper class. That middle class has just been carved out. How do we recreate that? How do we rebuild the economy of the country? We have to be factoring those things in. And, and I personally believe probably the, you know, the results of being at GMI for five years, the transportation technology plays a huge role in that. Connecting people is absolutely essential.
Are you aware of any other technology beyond what we've talked about that's out there at this point in time to address this issue? Well, you know, there's the autonomous vehicles. There's electric vehicles. Electric vehicles will play a huge role. We have to think about the parts you talk about. The last mile is really important. You know, I don't think Terraplane will fly into your garage, although depending on where your garage is and how wealthy you are, there's no reason why, you know, just like wealthy people in the era of rail had sidings built to their homes. So people had private rail cars. They'll have private Terraplanes vehicles. That's the nature of the game. Most of us, it'll probably be the community builds the guideway and Uber says, okay, we're going to order a million Terraplane vehicles from General Motors. General Motors, could you build us a million vehicles? And uh, GM will build them, sell them to Uber, and Uber will con- you know, take care of all the logistics like they do now. And far fewer people will own their own vehicle. Some people will want to, but millennials generally don't want to have those assets that, where's your car right now? Where's my car right now? It sits for 20, I, 10 minutes from work. So my car sits for 23 and a half hours a day. Okay, that's pretty poor asset utilization. You want these things flying 20 hours a day. It would be the goal. Well, I appreciate the time and Dr. Ken McLeod with the uh, Terraplane concept. I thank you so much for joining us today. Join us again to hear Kettering University's podcast, Horsepower to Hyperloops, available from wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening.